This is the um, AHN2, the second head and neck podcast, and this is devoted to the neck viscera. Uh, That's excluding the pharynx and larynx. We're principally talking about the thyroid, parathyroid, its anatomical variations of these, and also the anatomy of the salivary glands, the parotid and submandibular. Now, these neck viscera, the thyroid and uh, parathyroid, are located in the lower part of the anterior triangle of the neck, as we've defined it in a previous uh, podcast. And they're encased by the infrahyoid muscles, the sternohyoid anteriorly, and the flatter, deeper sternothyroid. The hyoid and its supra and infrahyoid muscles are partially covered in this podcast but also in the podcast on the mouth and the larynx. And there's an embryology podcast which uh, defines some aspects of the hyoid apparatus. The surgical approach to the thyroid is via the suprasternal incision, so-called Cocker's incision, one finger breadth above the suprasternal notch, via the subcutaneous tissue and then through the platysma, and then the investing layer of deep cervical fascia. Once one is in this plane under the investing layer of deep cervical fascia, the top skin flap needs to be carried to the level of the tracheal notch superiorly uh, and down to the clavicles and the sternoclavicular joints inferiorly. You can do that quite readily with one's finger under the uh, platysma, but that's the extent of the flap that needs to be created before the area is then opened up. The aim after that is to find the midline between the two bellies of the sternohyoid muscles where there's only loose areolar tissue and no small bridging vessels. And those muscles are then separated, pulling off the flatter, deeper sternothyroid muscle beneath, which is usually moderately adherent to the gland. The gland and its pretracheal fascia is then clearly evident as the veins on the surface of the thyroid start to bulge and enlarge out and as that fascia, the pretracheal fascia, is peeled away. For mobilisation of the lateral aspect of the gland and so that it can be prolapsed and rotated into the wound, uh, when it is present, a short but relatively wide middle thyroid vein is often seen exiting in the middle part of the lobe and running straight across directly into the internal jugular vein, and that needs to be formally ligated. And after that's done, the finger can then be passed around a thyroid lobe, and it can be elevated readily, even if there's retrosternal extension. Any bleeding may occur at the lower end of the womb, dependent upon the arrangement of the anterior jugular veins. And those, as we know, begin in the submental space, and they travel down in the investing layer, often with a small jugular venous arch connection in the suprasternal space before these empty into the external jugular vein on both sides. The reason why these veins are relevant are if someone needs to have a tracheostomy, they're occasionally in the way and they need to be um, dealt with. Um, 
the veins and the thyroid isthmus, as I've said, between the lobes of the thyroid have clinical significance for the performance of that tracheostomy. The anterior jugular vein typically pierces the investing layer of deep cervical fascia about the mid-level of the sternocleidomastoid, and then it lies slightly behind it to join the external jugular vein. There's some variability, as it can even replace the external jugular vein, or sometimes there may be only one midline anterior jugular vein, or a composite relationship between the anterior and external jugular veins. In the circumstance where there's a median vein replacement, that tends to run in front of the sternocleidomastoid, uh, and there's not, therefore, a traditional external jugular vein. So these variations in venous anatomy of the main veins, uh, superficial veins of the neck, can be relevant for cannulation. In this region that we're talking about from above downwards, there are a few landmarks. The median thyrohyoid ligament, that's part of the so-called thyroglossal apparatus, which connects the inferior and posterior surfaces of the body of the hyoid bone to the upper edge of the thyroid cartilage. And that's of importance in removing a thyroglossal cyst and fistula because it has such an intimate relationship to the hyoid bone, that tissue needs to be removed with the central part or body of the hyoid bone. That's covered later in this podcast. Uh, there's also an embryology uh, podcast on the thyroid and parathyroid as part of the head and neck embryology section. The second area, if we're looking at the region above downwards, the few landmarks that we see, as I've said, the first is the median thyrohyoid ligament, then the laryngeal prominence, which is the Adam's apple or thyroid notch, tracheal notch, the um, cricothyroid ligament, along with the only extrinsic visible laryngeal muscle on the external surface of the larynx, which is the cricothyroid, um, the isthmus of the thyroid gland, that is a constant, but it's a variable depth bridge of tissue which joins the thyroid lobes usually located over the second to the fourth tracheal rings and which may need division during a tracheostomy. The left lobe, more commonly uh, of the thyroid, is attached to a small extension of thyroid tissue which is called the pyramidal lobe and that's adherent to the hyoid in the manner I've just described by a small muscle or bit of muscular tissue which is called typically the levata glandular thyroidea which has emanated from the territory of the foramen cecum. That's at the junction between the anterior two-thirds and posterior third of the tongue during thyroid development. The infrahyoid musculature, or strap muscles, are the next area that we see in front of the thyroid, so we need to firstly describe these. And they're a little bit complicated, so I'm going to spend some time on it before going um, into a description of the thyroid proper. The muscles are innervated via the cervical plexus through its ansa cervicalis, and uh, that's covered in a later podcast. The fibres from C1 ventral root are transmitted along the hypoglossal nerve to innervate one of the suprahyoid muscles, the geniohyoid, and one of the infrahyoid muscles, the thyrohyoid. That's just the arrangement. These are C1 fibres travelling with the hypoglossal nerve. In the innovation of the infrahyoids, the nerves typically enter 
from the ensis of Ocalis at a rather low level. So that in very large thyroid masses where these masses can, uh, where the muscles can be divided relatively um, to get into the space, they should be divided high up so that you're likely to denervate less of the uh, infrahyoid muscles. In order to gain more room, there's therefore less risk of denervation if the transection of the muscles is made higher up. And that's usually done between two straight artery forceps, and then it can be resutured. The muscles are generally supplied actually segmentally from above downwards, and they have small tenderness intersections, a bit similar in principle to those that one sees on the rectus abdominis. These arise, uh, these muscles, from the prevertebral cervical myotomes, which explains why they're innervated by the ventral rami. In some texts, as these muscles are all in the same plane as vertical strip muscles, they're sort of embryologically considered as running down from the chin down to the pelvis. If you think about it, the chin has the suprahyoid muscles, the digastric, the stylohyoid, the mylohyoid, the geniohyoid. Then there's a strip of infrahyoid muscles, the sternohyoid, the sternothyroid, the omohyoid, the thyrohyoid. And then it's kind of continuous with the rectus abdominis and only interrupted by the thoracic cage. There's a continuous sheet, if you like, from the chin to the pubis, uh, innervated by C1 right down to T12. And in some patients, there's actually an anterior costal strip of similar muscle so innervated uh, in the chest, on the front of the chest, which um, is called the rectus stenalis. Probably about 5% of people um, uh, when it's present, and, and when it is present, that part of it may fuse with the sternal tendon of the sternocleidomastoid. So the idea is embryologically there's this thin strip of muscle running from your chin down to your pubis. Now the individual muscles of the infrahyoid region include the sternohyoid, the omohyoid, the thyrohyoid, and the sternothyroid. People get these confused, but they really are fairly straightforward, not only in their attachments, but also in their level and depth. The one in front is the sternohyoid, rather roundish muscle, takes origin from the central aspect of the lower border of the hyoid bone, and it inserts into the bone at the back of the sternoclavicular joint and to a variable part onto the manubrium and even the inner aspect of the clavicle. These two muscles, the two sternohyoids, which lie edge to edge of the hyoid, diverge from one another. And as I've said, they're rather longitudinal and, and, and round, quite robust. Lateral to that is the omohyoid. And that's laterally allocated from the lower border of the hyoid. It's not usually exposed in a thyroidectomy. And it passes laterally under the sternocleidomastoid over the carotid sheath and the internal jugular vein, where, as we've said before, it contains a central tendon, very similar in appearance and glide to the sort of central tendon between the bellies of the digastric muscle. And the inferior belly then runs posteriorly in the supraclavicular triangle to attach to part of the transverse scapular ligament overlying the suprascapular notch of the scapula and with a bit of muscle attachment onto the superior sharp border, which is uh, directed towards the coracoid process a bit more medially. The intermediate tendon has a double sleeve of investing fascia, and um, as it's cut, for example, in a neck dissection, 
the muscle typically retracts backwards towards the scapula. So this muscle, which really you know doesn't have much uh, functional significance, it does elevate the scapula, it pulls it medially, but it's a landmark really for the internal jugular vein and the common carotid artery, and it's a landmark obviously in radical neck dissection. The second muscle, uh, or I suppose the third muscle rather, is the thyrohyoid. And that's a shorter, flatter muscle, which is under cover of the sternohyoid muscle and also the omohyoid, and which arises from the lower margin of the greater horn or cornua of the hyoid. And it runs down just to attach to the oblique lamina of the thyroid cartilage. And in a sense, it is an end-to-end -end insertion with the origin below of the sternothyroid. So all of these things with thyroid attachment attached to the lamina, the oblique lamina of the thyroid cartilage. Above is the thyrohyoid, in series below is the sternothyroid. The thyrohyoid receives, as I've said before, its nerve supply via the hypoglossal nerve, but it's a hitchhiking series of uh, myotomal C1 fibres in the ansa cervicalis, certainly in its so-called superior root. And it covers the entry point, this muscle, of the internal laryngeal nerve, which provides sensation above the larynx and which travels with the branches of the superior laryngeal artery. That's actually also called the infrahyoid artery. It's a branch of the superior thyroid. So that thyrohyoid membrane is perforated by the internal laryngeal nerve, covering the sensation above the vocal cords and the superior laryngeal vessels, which is a branch of the superior thyroid. Um, the internal laryngeal nerve is, as we've said before, a branch of the superior laryngeal branch of the vagus. The only other muscle in this region is, as we've said, the series muscle below, deep to the sternohyoid, and that's the sternothyroid. It's broader than the sternohyoid, but it's flatter. It attaches at a lower level on the undersurface of the manubrium, well below the sternoclavicular joint, and without any particular clavicular attachment. So it's a deeper muscle, and it inserts lower down on the back of the manubrium. It does extend laterally also from the manubrial body to the first costal cartilage, and that can have relevance in the extirpation of a large retrosternal goiter. Its upper origin, as I've said, is in line with the oblique line of the thyroid cartilage, as I've already said, and its supply is C23 via the ansa, but via the lower root, if you like, the descendens hypoglossy. Its attachment on the thyroid cartilage is superficial to the pretracheal fascia and in front of the cricothyroid muscle. It's anterior to the large vessels of the upper thorax and the root of the neck and lies in front of the thyroid gland. So these infrahyoid muscles are all extrinsic laryngeal depressors, with only the sternothyroid really acting directly on the thyroid cartilage. Depression of the larynx actually increases the volume of resonation with a dynamic opposition of the opposing laryngeal elevators, such as the mylohyoid, the palatopharyngeus, the stylopharyngeus, the salpingopharyngeus, and the inferior constrictor. So all those suprahyoid muscles elevate the hyoid, but there's also these pharyngeal muscles, palato, stylo, salpingo, and I guess 
thyrofringeus, the inferior constrictor, which also will elevate it. So this, this kind of antagonism and agonism between elevation and depression of the larynx uh, or of the hyoid, as well as preventing, obviously, the ascent of the hyoid bone during movement of the digastric, which is a way of fixing the base of the hyoid for the tongue. And that's relevant particularly in swallowing and also in speech. And it keeps the distance between the thyroid cartilage and the hyoid bone relatively static. So, for example, you can draw the larynx towards the hyoid via the thyrohyoid in the early phase of swallowing. Or you can depress the larynx using the sternohyoid as in a later phase of swallowing. So it's a complex mechanism of stabilising the hyoid as a kind of table, if you will, during swallowing and speech. To recap on the neck triangles, the muscular triangle here, which is the area that we're talking about, is bounded by the sternocleidomastoid on each side and by the superior belly of the omohyoid and the midline plane. The next area that we've got to talk about is now the thyroid to the arch of the cricoid cartilage. So effectively all thyroid masses therefore move as we know with swallowing. The thyroid gland is one of the largest endocrine glands with a neonatal weight of about 2 to 3 grams but an adult weight of 18 to 20 grams. It's approximately 4 by 5 by 1 centimetre. Of course this is extremely variable. Beneath this there's a true thyroid capsule with the vessels extending between this and the pretracheal fascia. The delicate lobes are moulded around the trachea with the important relationship between the superior thyroid artery and the external laryngeal nerve at the top of the gland and the inferior thyroid artery and the recurrent laryngeal nerve in the middle of the gland posteriorly. The upper lobe relates to the inferior part of the inferior constrictor muscle, the so-called thyropharyngeus part, as well as the cricothyroid. And this is this space between the inferior constrictor and the cricothyroid, typically the so-called triangle of the lamiae, uh, or the area where a pharyngeal pouch may appear because of cricopharyngeal spasm. This is discussed uh, later in the pharyngeal um, podcast, but not here. Posteriorly to the gland is the prevertebral fascia, which is anterior to the longus colli muscle, with some overlap to the medial part attached to the carotid sheath, which lies laterally. The effect is to create really a triangular lobe which sits on its side with a lateral, medial and posterior surface. The lateral surface is tucked up against and beneath the upper end of the sternothyroid, preventing any further upward extension of a thyroid mass. The medial surface of the thyroid lobe hugs the lateral part of the or side of the larynx and the trachea with the laryngopharynx and the upper esophagus behind. And at this point, the esophagus is extremely flattened in the AP direction. It can be difficult, certainly in the cadaver sometimes, to identify. In brief, the gland develops as a caudal extension of the thyroglossal duct, which arises from the foramen cecum, which we mentioned before. The thyroid is the first endocrine gland to develop as an outgrowth of the pharynx via the first and second pharyngeal pouches near the base of the tongue. And I've included a little um, a reference by Rosen on this. 
The estimates of the pyramidal lobe, which we mentioned before, vary, with a 2015 paper looking at 166 patients finding a pyramidal lobe in 65.7% of cases. The pyramidal lobe can be isthmial or it can be lobar in origin with a propensity, as we've said before, to the left side. And it can be categorised as short, less than 15 millimetres in length, intermediate, 15 to 30, and long, over 30 in length. And the paper I've included is by Gerlaik um, on the pyramidal lobe in Anatomical Research, 2015. The basis of ectopic tissue, then, is one of migration, with the commonest being a failure of descent, so that the thyroid presents as a suprahyoid mass, which we call a lingual thyroid, sitting close to the tongue. Or, uh, if it's lower than that, it might be called a high cervical thyroid. And the danger has been that this tissue, which is the functioning thyroid tissue, has been in the past inadvertently removed. It's really a migration abnormality of normally functioning thyroid tissue. Excessive migration can, of course, lead to mediastinal or pericardial thyroid ectopia. And functioning thyroid tissue can apparently also be found in the adrenal and the pituitary glands along the gastrointestinal system variably, even as part of the female reproductive system and even described in the iris of the eye. <clears throat> now, based upon the anatomy of the thyroglossal tract and the levata glandulae thyroidae, most thyroglossal cysts are infrahyoid. They're between 25 to 65%. About 20% are suprahyoid masses. So these are the masses that specifically move with poking out of the tongue. And you see people examining the thyroids all the time and getting them to poke out the tongue. It's only relevant for a central mass like this that potentially could be thyroglossal. The intimate relationship between the tract and the front and undersurface of the central part or body of the hyoid bone necessitates that the body of the hyoid bone needs to be removed with the cyst and tract in toto. The distance between the foramen cecum and the hyoid, which you might think of as some distance, is actually extremely short. And during a dissection, that's assisted in the core out of the tract uh, through some of the intrinsic muscles of the tongue if the anaesthetist just puts their finger against the foramen cecum and pushes downwards. And suddenly, there's a, the, the whole thing comes out and uh, lies very close. So the base of the tongue to the hyoid, that distance is actually very short. The procedure for on-block removal of this tissue is the same for a cyst or a thyroglossal fistula. It's called cyst trunks operation, capital S-I-S-T-R-U-N-K apostrophe S, uh, not because it's a cyst or trunk, but after the American surgeon Walter Ellis cyst trunk, 1880 to 1933. There's actually a little obituary that I've posted also on the Anatopod Plus Facebook site for those who are interested. The vascular supply of the thyroid gland. The superior thyroid is the first branch of the external carotid artery. And after it's given off, it runs downwards vertically from that region, from the carotid bifurcation, piercing the pretracheal fascia at the apex of a lobe. And it usually typically forms an anterior and posterior branches and ultimately a posterior anastomosis in the middle and lower part of the gland with the inferior thyroid artery. A separate branch from the left 
superior thyroid artery can also supply the pyramidal lobe when present. The principal relationship of the superior thyroid artery, however, is with the external laryngeal nerve. The superior thyroid artery has discrete branches, and these include the superior laryngeal artery, which we've already mentioned, uh, also called the infrahyoid artery, which is quite a robust vessel, and it runs into the substance of the thyrohyoid membrane, as we've said, with the internal laryngeal nerve. And so superior laryngeal artery, internal laryngeal nerve. And there's a separate branch of the superior thyroid forward to the bottom of the sternocleidomastoid muscle. The upper branch, arterial supply to the sternocleidomastoid, comes from the sternocleidomastoid branch of the occipital artery. And that's a little artery that holds down the hypoglossal nerve as it's crossing the common carotid artery bifurcation. So in the upper part of the sternomastoid, you've got a sternomastoid branch of the occipital artery. In the lower part of the sternomastoid, there's a sternomastoid branch of the superior thyroid. And these are relevant if the sternomastoid was ever to be moved as a kind of free muscle graft with a paddle of skin or rotated like a local fascio or myocutaneous flap. So the blood supply of the sternomastoid is of relevance because in the past this was removed as part of a radical neck dissection and then if the wound broke down there was exposure of the carotid vasculature. So uh, this is of, of, of uh, a particular relevance. One of the ways, for example, of covering the carotid vasculature is to divide the sternocleidomastoid at its top and just remove it medially and resuture it to the undersurface of the mandible. So there, there are simple things that can be done to provide vascular closure, but based on the anatomy of the, um, uh, of the blood supply and, as we know, the nerve supply to sternocleidomastoid. Um, which is from the accessory nerve with proprioceptive fibres from the C23 parts of the cervical plexus. Now, one of the areas we need to talk about is the relationship of the superior thyroid artery and the external laryngeal nerve. This is a typical operative surgery question, but it's an anatomical understanding. And it's been formally assessed and graded in the past, the superior pole of the thyroid was taken out and ligated in a bunch. There was a, an instrument called a Cocker's enucleator. And basically, it's like a scoop with a groove in it. And you just pass this scoop behind the lower pole of the thyroid. And then through the groove, you put in an aneurysm needle and ligated the whole lobe in one. And what was found was that the not only the superior thyroid artery was ligated, but often because of its particular relationship with the external laryngeal nerve, that was ligated and jobbed um, as well. And so this has changed the way, the nature that this is done. It soon became apparent that there was a risk of external laryngeal nerve palsy. And the job of the external laryngeal nerve, that's a branch of the superior laryngeal branch of the vagus, that job is to innovate the cricothyroid muscle. So it's the only intrinsic muscle of the larynx which is not innervated by the recurrent laryngeal nerve. And the job of the cricothyroid is to tense the vocal fold so that it raises the pitch of the voice. And of course, injury to this nerve at thyroidectomy has been very relevant from a medico-legal point of view. The commonest classification of the superior thyroid artery and external laryngeal nerve relationship 
is by Cernia, C-E-R-N-E-A, and I've provided the reference for this from the Journal of Thyroid Disorders and Therapy. The effects, as I've said, of external laryngeal nerve damage can be quite subtle in some people, although it is a source of litigation in professional singers who may experience a kind of moderately breathy voice if it's injured, certainly a loss of pitch and a particular inability to raise the pitch and maintain a good pitch range. It's actually been called, just for interest, the nerve of Gallicurci, which is G-A-L-L-I hyphen C-U-R-C-I, after the Milanese opera singer, uh, the soprano Amelita Gallicurci, 1882-1963, in whom it was famously injured in 1935 in the USA during goiter surgery. She never really sang good opera after that. Now, the Cernia classification, which I've included in the Anatopod Plus site, uh, includes the assessment, actually, of a large number of Indian patients, but it's been generalised to other communities. Type 1 Cernia is where the um, superior thyroid artery crosses a centimetre above the upper pole of the thyroid. A type 2A is where it's less than a centimetre above the upper pole of the thyroid. And a type 2B is where it's under cover directly of the upper pole of the thyroid. So the Cernia classification is more describing the relationship of the superior thyroid artery to the pole of the thyroid rather than discreetly to the point of the external laryngeal nerve. There is a separate classification called the Friedman classification, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N, and that relates to the inferior constrictor, the thyropharyngeus part. So type 1 Friedman is that the nerve, now this refers to the nerve, perhaps a better classification, runs superficial to the inferior constrictor muscle. A type 2, the nerve penetrates the lower part of the inferior constrictor muscle. A type 3, the nerve actually runs deep to the inferior constrictor muscle. This is also not a great classification because the type 3 variant can account for the fact that the nerve is less often identifiable than, than it is identifiable. In other words, most of the studies don't identify the nerve. So there's this debate about whether one should be looking directly for the nerve or not. There is another classification, the so-called Kierner classification, K-I-E-R-N-E-R, such that a type 1 crosses the superior thyroid artery more than a centimetre above the upper pole of a thyroid, type 2 less than one centimetre, very similar to the Chernia classification, Type 3 crosses under cover of the upper pole of the thyroid, so that's identical. But there's a type 4 where it descends dorsal to the artery. It crosses the artery branches immediately above the upper pole of the thyroid. The point one wants to make here, I think, is that there is a very close association. And that if one stays on the artery, ligating it in seriatim, uh, then it's less likely that the nerve will be injured if one stays as close to the upper pole of the thyroid as possible. The fact that there is a Friedman type 3 in many cases, in other words, that it's running deep to the inferior constrictor, means that the nerve will, more often than not, not be seen. And I think these anatomical factors are of great relevance. In older texts, the ELN, the external laryngeal nerve, passes superficial 
to the inferior constrictor muscle, where it's been described as lying within what's called Joel's Triangle. Uh, and that's also called by some the sternothyrolaryngeal triangle of Joel, which is formed laterally by the upper pole of the thyroid and the superior thyroid vessels, superiorly by the attachment of the strap muscle to the thyroid cartilage, and medially by the midline. It's a far less reliable standard. Um, so uh, it's not something that is routinely used. But at postgraduate level, uh, some may speak about this. Cecil Joel was an English thyroid surgeon, 1885 to 1945, and I've included some articles and diagrams on the Friedman variation. So that's the association between the superior thyroid artery and the external laryngeal nerve. The other area we've got to talk about, obviously, is the inferior thyroid artery and the relationship also with the recurrent laryngeal nerve, which is the big deal with thyroid. The inferior thyroid artery, as we know, arises from the thyrocervical trunk off of the first portion of the subclavian artery before it runs behind the scalenus anterior muscle. Now, this artery approaches the thyroid from the lateral side of the neck by running under the common carotid artery up and under it. In the past, this was a method certainly of finding, and it's still a good method in recurrent thyroid surgery. And then it runs upwards, directly upwards, really, to pierce the pretracheal fascia, usually separately along the thyroid substance. The relationship of this artery to the recurrent laryngeal nerve is, of course, of tremendous importance, with a trend in years past to ligate the inferior thyroid artery in isolation, well out lateral to the gland and distant to its entry into the gland in order to avoid recurrent laryngeal nerve damage. We don't do that anymore. There's certainly an increase in total thyroidectomy for both benign and malignant thyroid disease now, and it's been recognised that that lateral ITA approach leads to parathyroid ischemia and insufficiency. And so what's now done is that the small inferior thyroid vessels directly on the gland are ligated in seriatim, very close to the gland, after identification of the recurrent laryngeal nerve. The ITA is the developmental artery of the region, which supplies the tracheoesophageal enlarge in the neck, and it gives off esophageal and inferior laryngeal branches before it reaches the thyroid gland. So it's a very important seminal artery of the neck in, in development of the trachea and the cervical esophagus. The pride of place, as the anatomist Ray Last describes it uh, in this anatomical discussion, is the recurrent laryngeal nerve, with a variable relationship, as we've said, to the inferior thyroid artery. More commonly, the recurrent laryngeal nerve lies behind the ITA, although that may be variable. On the right side, may even pass between branches of the ITA. So this idea of necessarily isolating it is um, uh, not a particularly good idea and is not done anymore. On occasion, there's a minute vessel, which is a branch of the ITA, which is visible on the nerve directly. The recurrent laryngeal nerve will always, however, be behind the pretracheal fascia and the fascial membranous connection, which attaches to the cricoid cartilage. That is the so-called suspensory ligament of Berry. At the upper border of the isthmus, it's not uncommon also for the nerve to divide into two branches, with typically the larger anterior branch, the one closest to us, being the most important, the motor laryngeal branch, 
and the posterior one being sensory. And there's an article I've included on this uh, uh, particular um, subject. Um, it comes from an interesting book called The Recurrent and Superior Laryngeal Nerves, um, which is edited by G.W. Randolph. Now, I want to take a little bit of time just talking about the suspensory ligament of Berry. We'll then talk a little bit about the recurrent laryngeal nerve and some variations there, including the non-recurrent inferior laryngeal nerve, the remainder of the blood supply of the thyroid, venous drainage and lymphatic drainage before then moving on to the parathyroid glands. The course of the last two centimetres of the recurrent laryngeal nerve is critical to this suspensory ligament of Berry, which is divisible into a superficial vascular fascial layer and a deeper fibrous layer, with the recurrent laryngeal nerve typically moving between both. In the superficial layer, the recurrent laryngeal nerve is close to the terminal branches, as I've said, of the ITA, and to an area called the organ of Zuckerkandl, as well as a marker for the superior parathyroid gland. So all of these are tied together. The risks of a permanent recurrent laryngeal nerve injury may vary at thyroidectomy from 0.2 to 0.7% overall, but they are dependent upon the mechanism with a worse prognosis if you've got electrical injury, ischemia, ligation or crushing, as opposed to some more stretched neuropraxia. It should also be pointed out that the nature of thyroid mobilisation changes the anatomical position of the recurrent laryngeal nerve from its normal in situ place because the lobe is rotated and that stretches it more typically vertically upwards, particularly in a large thyroid. So our orientation needs to change, or a dimensional orientation. One further landmark which is considered in the surgical, but not really the anatomical literature, is the organ of Zuckerkandl, first described actually in 1867 by Madlung and labelled the posterior horn of the thyroid, and then in 1902 by Zuckerkandl as what's called the processus posterior glandulae thyroidae. It's actually embryologically the most posterior aspect of the thyroid lobe near the ligament of Berry with a close relationship to the superior parathyroid gland. And it forms from the lateral thyroid enlage as a fusion of the fifth and the ventral portion of the fourth pharyngeal pouches. And that landmark is actually considered an arrow which directly points to the recurrent laryngeal nerve. The ultimobranchial bodies, with its concentration of so-called parafollicular or C-cells, are where the superior parathyroid glands fuse at that point with the thyroid gland, and they account for that relatively close association between the back of the thyroid, the organ of Zuckerkandl, and the superior parathyroid gland, and that's because they've embryologically developed together. Uh, there is actually a grading based on the size of the organ of Zuckerkandl, minuscule up to one centimetre in diameter. It's called the Pelizzo grading, P-L-I-Z-Z-O grading, and I've given a, a reference for that. The other area that causes a little bit of confusion is the so-called suspensory ligament of Berry, and that's a condensed part of the pretracheal fascia, which attaches the thyroid to the cricotracheal enlarge, and that was first described by Berry in 1888. 
As the position of the recurrent laryngeal nerve in relation to the ligament of Berry is shifted again, as I've said, by lobe rotation from its in situ position, there is the sort of creation of a kind of genu or bend in the extralaryngeal part of the nerve with a greater risk of traction to that anterior motor branch as it takes off from the main recurrent laryngeal nerve trunk. So there is a risk involved in excessive uh, gland rotation at that point. And it's at that point that the recurrent laryngeal nerve may be vulnerable where there's a little bit of bleeding or if the ligament is a bit dense or uh, if there's even some excessive nerve branching at that point. I've included a few references on this uh, particular um, subject. <clears throat> Debate has actually centred around direct exposure of the course of the nerve, whether it should or shouldn't be, and with particular attention to its relationship to the landmarks I've already described from a lateral approach as the nerve runs upwards in the tracheoesophageal groove and into the larynx. In some difficult cases, after ligation of the superior pole, you can use a superior pole approach to isolate the recurrent laryngeal nerve at the ligament of Berry, a kind of top-down approach at the bottom end of the inferior constrictor. An inferior approach, the other way, I think is less advised where the thyroid is lifted up against the trachea and it requires actually a longer recurrent laryngeal nerve dissection and exposure, obviously a greater risk of neuropraxia. And similarly, there are lateral superior and inferior mobilizations have been described. People have described other mobilizations outside the neck of the thyroid, transaxillary, retroauricular, minimally invasive thyroidectomy approaches. And uh, I won't go into that, but there are these newer approaches that have been described. Now, we can't avoid talking about the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Uh, that's the principal area of interest. It's the principal area of medical legal interest and anatomical interest. At the point where the recurrent laryngeal nerve enters the larynx, it's more appropriate to really refer to it as the inferior laryngeal nerve in order to distinguish it from the superior laryngeal nerve, which we've already mentioned. One covers the infracord sensation, the other the sensation above the remaglottidus, respectively. There is a propensity for the recurrent laryngeal nerve, particularly on the right, to be non-recurrent, and hence the term non-recurrent inferior laryngeal nerve. It doesn't make sense to talk about non-recurrent recurrent laryngeal nerve. The identification of the non-recurrent inferior laryngeal nerve may be made by stimulating the proximal vagus at the upper margin of the thyroid cartilage intraoperatively, and the distal vagus of about the fourth tracheal ring. So there are some studies that have looked at the kind of intraoperative electromyography uh, of that. An appreciation of the anatomy can be obtained by understanding also the vascular anatomy associated with non-recurrent inferior laryngeal nerve, with both a distal and proximal isolation of the nerve designed to obviate injury. Now, the recurrent laryngeal nerve arises from the vagus at the sixth visceral arch with recurrence under the sixth branchial arch. The fourth arch is the only arch to remain with the fifth and sixth resorbing. And therefore, the recurrent laryngeal nerve runs up under the fourth arch, which on the right side forms the right subclavian artery, so that the right-hand system runs around the right subclavian artery to ascend into the neck in the tracheoesophageal groove. 
on the left side, the sixth branchial arch forms the ductus arteriosus, with the normal left-sided arrangement of the recurrent laryngeal nerve running around the arch of the aorta again to get medially to the tracheoesophageal groove. This we know, one running under the aorta, the other running under the subclavian artery. But what's the story with the non-recurrent inferior laryngeal nerve? This relies on an abnormal embryological formation of the aortic arch, with a right subclavian artery forming beyond the takeoff of the left subclavian artery, so it's distal to that and without an innominate artery, or as a variant of a right aortic arch where the pulmonary artery is located on the right side but with the vessels in the similar manner. I've included a relevant diagram on this uh, subject. These are attached as diagrams from an article uh, written by Lubitz. The prevalence of this anomaly is about half to 1% overall, a result of an abnormal absorption, as I've said, of the fourth right branchial arch, so that in a left-sided aortic arch, the right subclavian artery is aberrant, comes off below, beyond the left subclavian artery, and it gets to the right limb by running behind the esophagus. For these reasons, the, inf- uh, the uh, non-recurrent inferior laryngeal nerve is an entirely right-sided phenomenon. The condition is re- uh, itself was referred to in 1936 by Arkin as what is called arteria lusoria, L-U-S-O-R-I-A, which just really means quirky artery. And in about 10% of cases, because it's running behind the esophagus and compressing it, it can result in a so-called dysphagia lusoria, a dysphagia due to this arterial variant. Some cases have been, even been associated with a relative aplasia of the circle of Willis. So there is this clustering, vascular clustering that can occur. There is a classification of non-recurrent inferior laryngeal nerve, which depends upon which level it arises directly from the vagus. But I don't think that adds anything much to the discussion. The non-recurrent can obviously be detected proximally near the cricoarotenoid joint entry or distally in the tracheoesophageal groove at the level of the lower pole of the thyroid. And what's happening there is that the vagus directly gives a branch to the larynx. A final point of interest is the use of the course of the recurrent laryngeal nerve by the biologist Professor Richard Dawkins. I just wanted to add this point. He's argued that the presence of a recurrent laryngeal nerve like this is a signal, if you like, against intelligent design. And he's done so with the dissection of the recurrent laryngeal nerve in a giraffe. You can see that on a YouTube video, arguing that it's an evolutionary hangover from fish and would be against the idea of intelligent design. Why, he would argue, and I don't wish to offend anyone, but why, he would argue, would an intelligent designer design something such as a recurrent laryngeal nerve where it is given off um, distal, well distal, to the point that it innovates, such as the recurrent recurrent thena branch of the median nerve or the recurrent genicular nerve of the knee. There aren't many recurrent uh, nerves in the the body. Other religious groups, however, have their own videos, and you can see these if you like, and they've suggested 
that the task of the recurrent laryngeal nerve in the thorax is actually also to supply esophageal and cardiac plexus branches, and they provided a counter-argument that the purposes of the recurrent laryngeal nerve are applicable. In other words, as it's moving down, it's providing esophageal and mediastinal and cardiac plexus branches, so that even though it looks recurrent in a sense, it's actually not recurrent. For Dawkins, the intelligent designer would just redesign something, whereas evolution cannot, of course, amend such a mistake. And that's his argument. I'm not going to buy into this argument for our students, but I just wanted to draw your attention to a YouTube video on giraffe dissection, which I've included uh, on the uh, Facebook Anatopod Plus. The other point to mention uh, is the position of the cord after a recurrent laryngeal nerve palsy. In the living state, the cord, uh, that's the vocal cord, will be unable to be abducted because of paralysis to the only muscle which abducts the cords, and that is the posterior cricoarotenoid. It is the only muscle abducting the cords and regarded by many ear, nose and throat surgeons as the most important muscle in the body, not without good reason. So it's an unusual design. All of the intrinsic muscles of the larynx are innervated by the recurrent laryngeal nerve except the cricothyroid. But the only muscle that abducts the remoglottidus is the posterior cricoarotenoid, only one muscle. The cord, unable to abduct if the recurrent laryngeal nerve is injured, is joined by the contralateral healthy cord, which has to prolapse across the midline to join it in a tiring and often weakened hoarse voice. And that's indeed the basis of Teflon injection of the cord, which assists its position. The patient with bilateral recurrent laryngeal nerve palsy will have a mid-lying cord, and although there would be an airway, this often requires a tracheostomy. The cadaveric position of the cord, the position in the cadaver, on the other hand, is halfway between the abducted and the adducted position, since there's no muscle activity at all, and... Uh, as a result, it's in a different location, so it's an open rema. The final area that we've got is the remaining arterial supply of the thyroid. We mentioned the superior thyroid and the inferior thyroid. There is also the thyroidia imma artery, said to be present in about 3% of individuals, first described in 1772 by Jonathan Neubauer. It's a persistent fetal vessel which can arise directly from the brachiocephalic trunk, the aortic arch directly, or even the left or right common carotid artery, and it ascends on the front of the anterior surface of the isthmus. It can rarely originate from the subclavian artery, or from the pericardiophrenic artery, which is a uh, branch of the internal thoracic, or directly from the thyrocervical trunk, or the internal thoracic directly itself. The vascular anastomosis is usually in the posterior aspect of the thyroid lobes with some anterior anastomosis across the upper border of the isthmus anteriorly. And that may be relevant because that can also be damaged during a percutaneous tracheostomy. I've included a little reference on that. On the venous drainage of the thyroid gland, this is also partly embryological. There are three separate pairs of veins which drain the thyroid a superior thyroid vein arising near the upper pole, traced out that commonly crosses the carotid bifurcation on its way to the internal jugular vein. It may ascend towards the facial vein in some cases. 
There is, as I've already mentioned, a short middle thyroid vein which runs directly across from the lobe to the internal jugular vein laterally. And there's then typically a small leash of inferior thyroid veins which enter the left brachiocephalic vein inferiorly. These may receive tributaries from tracheal, laryngeal and esophageal veins. Now this has embryologic significance. The left brachiocephalic vein forms differently to the right as part of the anterior cardinal vein and it runs all the way across to the right hand side to join this um, at about the level of the first costal cartilage in the formation of the superior vena cava. If you look at it in the abdomen, it's similar. You've got the left renal vein running all the way across to join the IVC. You've got the asymmetry of the left common iliac vein as well, uh, which runs under the right common iliac artery to join to form the lower end of the IVC. So normally what happens here is on the left side in the chest, there is a left superior vena cava, but that regresses. And therefore the left brachiocephalic vein runs all the way across to join the right brachiocephalic vein to form the superior vena cava. The consequence is that the tributaries of this vein, the brachiocephalic vein or innominate vein on the left, are therefore different to the right. The right one and the left receive both the vertebral veins, but the left one receives typically these inferior thyroid veins which run down into the left brachiocephalic vein into the chest. It will also see the left brachiocephalic vein receives the thymic veins and the drainage of the first and second intercostal spaces there, the superior intercostal vein. So the reason why the left brachiocephalic vein receives the inferior thyroid vein along with other particular veins uh, asymmetrically is because of this variable embryologic uh, relationship. Um, on the right-hand side, obviously, the right superior intercostal vein drains directly into the azygos. A couple of other areas on the thyroid include the lymphatics. These follow the arteries, entering upwards into the anterosuperior group of deep cervical nodes and entering inferiorly behind the inferior thyroid artery origin into a postero-inferior group. Some pass downwards within the pretracheal nodes in the midline, and there's a particular node which is called the Delphian node after the Delphic oracle, which sits in the midline of the upper isthmus, where it can be found in about 20% of central neck dissections for papillary thyroid cancer, and where the presence of that Delphian node correlates with the primary thyroid tumour size, with the presence of lymphovascular evasion, invasion, and with a multicentric focus of papillary thyroid cancer. On the nerve supply, the sympathetic supply includes the middle cervical or cervical ganglion, which supplies this area with sympathetic activity, entering with the inferior thyroid artery as a little plexus there, and with some fibres from the superior cervical ganglion coming in with the superior thyroid artery, as well as from some cardiac and laryngeal branches. There is some vagal activity to the thyroid gland, but we don't really know what that functionally signifies. The structure of the gland, as we know, is its follicular activity with, the, as I mentioned before, the so-called parafollicular or C-calcitonin cells responsible for calcitonin production arising from the so-called ultimobranchial body, which is the remnant of the fifth pharyngeal pouch. Um, the next area that we want to talk about 
is the parathyroid glands. The parathyroids are two pairs of small tan glands, again with variable size, but approximately 6 by 3 by 2 millimetres, which are typically embedded in the posterior part of the thyroid, but with importantly variable position uh, in the location of hyperparathyroidism, hypercalcemia, due to parathyroid adenoma or hyperplasia, uh, where they can be typically 30 to 60 milligrams in weight. The superior parathyroid is more constant in its position, lying below the superior thyroid artery near the posterior surface of the thyroid lobe, the organ of Zuckerkandl, as we've spoken, and level with the first tracheal ring. The inferior parathyroid is much more variable and may lie at the lower pole of the thyroid, but much lower, either in the upper thymus or the mediastinum or in the so-called thyrothymic ligament. It's usually lateral to the recurrent laryngeal nerve. There may be identified, at least in life, uh, these uh, uh, glands by having a small little petechial blood blush as they are manipulated, and occasionally small vessels can be seen running on top of them. The lower parathyroids develop higher up with the thymus from the third pharyngeal pouch, what is typically referred to by embryologists and anatomists as a P3 origin, and therefore they can descend with the thymus to a variably low position. So the higher developing parathyroids can ultimately end up at the lowest point. The upper parathyroids typically develop from the fourth pharyngeal pouch, they're called P4, uh, and they have, as I've said, a more constant and more superior position. In 90% of cases, there are four parathyroid glands. However, they can be supernumerary, with a total weight that doesn't exceed 200 milligrams. The older technique of laterally isolating the ITA ligation, as I've spoken about before, in order to avoid recurrent laryngeal nerve injury, has been abandoned because this disrupts the parathyroid blood supply and leads to a higher incidence of perioperative hypocalcemia. Ectopic or aberrant locations of the superior parathyroid can include those where it's found within the carotid sheath, whereas the inferior gland can be embedded within the thyroid lobe, quite apart from being mediastinal. So sometimes when these were not found, although localization pre and intraoperatively is better now, then uh, a lower parathyroid that was missing might have been subjected to a thyroid lobectomy on that side. On occasion, the carotid sheath may have been opened looking for an upper ectopic parathyroid. Parathyroid glands may be extracted also by removal of the thyrothymic tissue between the lower pole of the thyroid and the upper mediastinal thymus. And remnants of thyroid tissue are found in about half of the cases in this thyrothymic area. And in half of these rests, thyroid tissue that is functioning is bilateral. There's a little article that I've included by Sackett on the thyrothymic uh, thyroid rests. The next area that we uh, need to move to is then the salivary glands. Uh, and I want to include some aspects of operative surgery on these. I turn my attention now in the discussion of the neck viscera to the anatomy of the salivary glands. There's some overlap here with the anatomy of the face. 
the autonomic layout of the head and neck. There is a separate podcast on the autonomic nervous system of the head and neck. Um, <clears throat> I think that's the, uh, uh, the one after next. The suprahyoid region will overlap, of course, as will the temporal and the infratemporal fossae. So wherever we go in anatomy, there's a degree of overlap uh, to these uh, particular podcasts and discussions. The podcasts on all of these areas will provide contextual overlap and some degree of repetition and reinforcement. The principal areas of study that we want to talk about here are the parotid and the submandibular glands, but I'll also include a brief mention of the sublingual gland, which is included also in the discussion podcast on the oral cavity. The latter podcast includes the oropharynx and the palate. In addition to the major salivary glands, there are on grid count around 750 to 1,000 minor salivary glands, and they're located principally in the palate, but also along the oral cavity in the buccal, labial, and lingual submucosa, as well as the soft palate, the lateral hard palate, and the floor of the mouth. And those glands are obviously the subject of stones, so-called sialolithiasis, chronic inflammation, sialadenitis, sialectasis, von Nicolitz syndrome, Sjögren syndrome, there are a range of these, and of course tumours. For general interest, nearly 80% of neoplastic lesions uh, in the salivary glands are located in the parotid, about 15% of which are locally aggressive or frankly malignant. We could go into some of the different types of these, such as the uh, adenoid cystic, which has a propensity for neural invasion. 15% of all the salivary gland tumours are located in the submandibular gland, and about nearly half of those are malignant. And the remaining 5% in the minor salivary glands, about 90% of them are malignant. And uh, particularly the variants include low and high-grade mucoepidermoid tumours, the high-grade ones of which are particularly radiosensitive. So I want to start with the parotid gland uh, and then move on to the submandibular gland. The area below the zygomatic arch contains the parotid gland and the masseter, as well as the termination of the temporalis. This is really the upper part of the temporal fossa. The parotid is a watershed area in the manner in which the investing layer of deep cervical fascia splits around it in front and behind, filling in, as I've said in an earlier podcast, that space between the mastoid process and the angle of the mandible. And in an artificial separation, really, of the parotid into a superficial and deep parotid lobe, which separates what's called a fascio, fascio, F-A-C-I-O, venous plane for the seventh nerve, and deeply against the side of the pharynx as a termination of the external carotid artery into its superficial temporal and maxillary arteries. So what happens is that the parotid sits like a sandwich. In its substance is the facial nerve and its ramifications, and just deep to that are parts of the facial vein. And then in the deep part of the parotid is the terminal branch of the external carotid into its superficial temporal artery and maxillary artery. So the parotid is sandwiched in that way. The gland shape is like an inverted triangle, and it fills in the space backwards as far as the styloid process and deeply the side of the pharynx. The orientation effectively really creates a separate lateral surface, an anterior border, if you like, and a deep surface, and it's surrounded on all its surfaces, as I've said, 
by a thickened specialised part of the fascia, which limits infection, such as in mumps, uh, what we call really the parotid fascia. The upper pole is in front of the cartilaginous section of the external auditory meatus, and with some adherence even to part of the temporomandibular joint. The lower pole of the gland extends below the angle of the mandible, overlapping part of the posterior belly of the digastric, and that's important because a tumour in the lower pole of the parotid appears below the angle of the mandible, and it can be confused with things like a branchial cyst. At the upper end, attached to the parotid duct, is Stenson's duct, after the Dutch, named after the Dutch anatomist Nicholas Steno, and it's an aggregate of parotid tissue which is called the socia parotidis. The depth of the gland embraces the masseter muscle on its outer surface and inwards the medial pterygoid muscle. And here there's a thickening of the fascia which is called the stylomandibular ligament which separates the inner surface of the parotid gland from the medial pterygoid and it sends a fascial extension to separate off lower down the submandibular gland. So there is actually this split of fascia around the parotid and then a bridge of fascial tissue to another split around the submandibular gland. And that bridge of tissue is the stylomandibular ligament. At the anterior border, deeply, the parotid duct emerges, as do the five separate delicate branches of the seventh nerve. The deep part of the gland is indented by the mastoid process, lying deeply against the styloid apparatus, which includes the stylohyoid, the styloglossus and the stylopharyngeus, and these represent the embryologic symbolic guy ropes, if you like, of the seventh cranial nerve, that's the second branchial arch, which innervates the stylohyoid, the twelfth cranial nerve, which innervates the styloglossus, and the ninth cranial nerve, the third pharyngeal pouch, which innervates the stylopharyngeus. The area deeply relates to the two ligaments, as I've said, the stylohyoid and the stylomandibular. And deeply, the styloid process separates the deep part of the gland from the internal carotid artery and the side of the pharynx, there at this level, the superior constrictor, and the internal jugular vein. Now, the principal association of the parotid gland and parotidectomy is really with the facial nerve, and this is something we need to understand. There is separate discussion of the autonomic aspects related to the facial nerve in the podcast on the autonomic nervous system of the head and neck, and there's a separate discussion of the facial nerve and facial lesions in a separate podcast on the cranial nerves. But there will be some overlap here. The principal association with the seventh nerve is where the gland is really artificially divided into a superficial and a deep lobe. Now, that's got an historical context. It's a somewhat artificial separation, and it arose because of the habit of enucleating what are called mixed salivary parotid adenomas because they appeared encapsulated. The problem with that operation, which was going on in the 1960s and 70s, was that there was a very high local recurrence rate, and it forced the operation, an artificial operation, of what was called a conservative superficial parotidectomy, which separated off the gland from in front of the facial nerve. Even though the facial nerve is embedded in the glands, they said that everything in front of that is the superficial lobe and everything that's deep is the deep lobe. Embedded within the gland uh, are, of course, the seventh nerve. Deep to that are the retromandibular vein 
And then deep, as I've said, to that deep to the gland itself is the termination of the external carotid artery. Parotid or preauricular lymph nodes are also embedded in the parotid gland subcapsularly, and so they can appear as parotid masses. And there are filaments at the back of the auriculotemporal nerve, the um, um, sensory branch of the mandibular division of the trigeminal, which are bringing in parasympathetic secretomotor, or what we call pseudo, S-U-D-O, motor fibres, uh, which will synapse in the otic ganglion and innervate the uh, parotid gland. So the parotid duct courses across the front of the masseter. It pierces the buccinator muscle, opens onto the mucosa as a visible papilla opposite the second upper molar tooth. And it's a surface landmark for the front of, uh, uh, running from the front of the tragus of the ear to the chelon of the eye. And of course, radiologists, if they want to see a parotid calculus, if they want to do a sialogram, insert dye into that duct, have to find it as a little raised papilla opposite the second molar tooth. Now, as I've said, the main concern during parotidectomy is de detection, location of the facial nerve. There are several points here. The filaments of seven at the front of the parotid are very delicate and typically divided although with considerable variation and overlap, into a zygomatiofacial and a cervicofacial branch. That is almost always the case, that the main facial nerve divides into a large zygomatiofacial and a smaller cervicofacial branch. The typical branches that come out of this are then temporal, zygomatic to the orbicularis oculi, buccal, marginal mandibular to the depressor angulioris and the depressor labia inferioris muscles, and cervical, which goes to the platysma. So these branches are pretty easily remembered. If you place your hand along the side of the face with five splayed fingers, then you have them, temporal, zygomatic, buccal, marginal mandibular, and cervical. Arguments been made over the most crucial branch, with some suggesting that the zygomatic branch is important because if that's injured, it requires liquid tears or a partial lid closure, a lateral tarsorophy, because of the risk of corneal ulceration. Some have suggested, the ear, nose and throat surgeons in particular, that the buccal branch is the most important because if that's injured, it results in drooling. Bell's palsy, which is named after the 19th century English anatomist Sir Charles Bell, is a lower motor neurone seventh nerve palsy to all those muscles of facial expression. So that's the drooping face. And as opposed to a supranuclear or upper motor neurone seventh nerve palsy, where the brow of the frontalis, which is cortically bilaterally represented, is preserved. So in other words, the separation between a lower motor neurone seventh, like a bell's, is that all of the muscles of facial expression droop, whereas the stroke the upper motor neuron or supranuclear seventh nerve palsy, the brow can still furrow. Now, what about the course of the seventh nerve as it makes its way in this region? The seventh nerve comes out of the skull via the stylomastoid foramen, a little foramen between the mastoid um, and the styloid uh, process. And it enters the substance of the parotid gland, almost coming straight out of us vertically. On the side, the seventh nerve comes up towards the surgeon or the anatomist and may be found by a standard operative incision, which is called a Blair incision, 
So we need to be very specific about this if we're talking about operative surgery and describing incisions. This incision runs from the zygomatic arch just in front of the tragus of the ear across to the tip of the mastoid process around the lobe of the ear in a gentle curve and then down two finger breaths below the angle of the mandible so as not to injure the marginal mandibular division of the facial nerve and it finishes at the greater horn of the hyoid bone. That's an exact description of the incision. The flap is dissected off the cartilaginous portion of the external auditory meatus as far as the junction of its cartilaginous and bony portions, very specific. Just below this junction is a small tubercle called Eddie's tubercle, with the seventh nerve lying immediately beneath that palpable spur. Another lamina is to place the epinicule fold of the thumbnail on the tip of the mastoid process, and the seventh nerve will lie in that block of tissue as far forward as the end of the thumb and as deep as the end of the thumb. My point being here that it lies a lot deeper than one thinks. There are a number of other ways of finding the seventh nerve, and these can be used if, for example, one is doing a reoperation where fibrosis is already present and has obscured some of the natural landmarks. One is to find the delicate buckle branch near the palpable Stenson's duct or another terminal twig at the anterior part of the gland. The other option is to seek out the marginal mandibular branch. Each of these has the risk, obviously, of injury or neuropraxia because they are very delicate. There is even a retro-auricular approach that's been described, just getting back to it at the level of the stylomastoid foramen, but that gives no particular purchase anteriorly. The point I'm trying to make is, certainly in the dissecting room, there are a number of potential options based on the anatomy coming out the stylomastoid foramen where this particular nerve can be um, <coughs> viewed. There are also a number of variations, as we know, in terminal connections, which include ones where there are no connections between the end branches, uh, there are other complex connections between temporal, zygomatic, buccal and mandibular so that you can have buccomandibular, temporozygomatic, zygomatico-buccal. There's a, a type 9 complex which has been described where there are buccobuccal branches or zygomatico-buccal branches or where there's a double origin to the buccal or a double mandibular or uh, um, a connection between the buccal and the main cervicofacial. The point being that there are some anatomic variations which allow for a degree of recovery if a small filament is injured or sacrificed. And I've included an image of these variations uh, on the Facebook support page. Now, deep, or behind, if you like, the seventh nerve, is the retromandibular vein. And we need to know a little something about that. That's an anterior confluence of the superficial temporal Often there's a middle temporal, and there may be stout maxillary veins and a transverse facial vein, so it's a little variable. But this retromandibular vein, once formed, divides anteriorly into the anterior division of the retromandibular vein and a posterior division of the retromandibular vein at the lower end of the parotid gland. The anterior branch typically joins the facial vein, and it empties forward into the internal jugular vein. In the neck, it receives the superior thyroid vein and sometimes some little venae comitantes that are surrounding the hypoglossal nerve. The posterior branch of the retromandibular vein runs backwards, 
it pierces the investing layer of deep cervical fascia, it's joined by the posterior auricular vein, and it becomes the external jugular vein. That, of course, runs down on the sternocleidomastoid. It pierces the fascia a few centimetres above the root of the neck or clavicle to empty via a valve into the subclavian vein, perhaps a centimetre or so above the clavicle. The posterior auricular vein may be joined also at this level by a mastoid emissary vein, which connects it to the sigmoid sinus. The superficial lymph nodes embedded in the parotid drain the auricle, the anterior scalp, the upper face. There are deeper nodes and they'll receive lymph that drains from the external auditory meatus, from as far deeply as the middle ear, the auditory tube or pharyngotympanic tube, the nose, the palate and the deep cheek. So nodes that can arise in the parotid can have a wide origin. Now, one of the areas of overlap is the secretomotor, or so-called pseudomotor, S-U-D-O, motor uh, function of the parotid gland. That lies within the structure of the head and neck autonomic nervous system, and I'll refer you to the additional podcast on that area. But we'll consider it here for the moment. The chain of command in the autonomic nervous system, this is all parasympathetic supply, Uh, is that there are four known ganglia in the head and neck that are parasympathetic, the ciliary, the pterygopalatine, the submandibular, and the otic. For the parotid, the otic is the ganglion that we want to know, and there is a chain of command from the CNS towards this. The chain of command is that there's a nucleus, a preganglionic pathway to the ganglion, the ganglion itself, a postganglionic pathway, and then the target tissue. So we know the target tissue is the parotid. The uh, nucleus is the inferior salivatory nucleus, and that lies within the midbrain and gets to the otic ganglion via the ninth nerve. So the preganglionic pathway is through a branch called the lesser petrosal nerve, which appears in the middle cranial fossa. This used to be called Jacobson's nerve. After its synapses in the otic ganglion, which is just at the base of the skull, the postganglionic pathway then hitches along with the available part of the trigeminal nerve going to the parotid gland. So in this case, the postganglionic parasympathetics, after they've synapsed in the otic ganglion, will hitchhike along with the auriculotemporal nerve, which we've already mentioned, that actually splits around the origin of the middle meningeal artery, and it runs along the side of the temple and the parotid. It's a branch, the large sensory branch, of the mandibular division of the trigeminal, or V3. Sympathetic fibres travel along the middle meningeal artery, and the skin over the angle of the mandible and the parotid capsule is innervated, as we've said before, by the great auricular nerve, C23, a branch, a sensory branch of the cervical plexus. That great auricular nerve, by the way, is quite large, and it supplies part of the earlobe, but it may be sacrificed with minimal morbidity and used as a cable graft should the seventh nerve ever need to be sacrificed in a parotidectomy for malignant disease. It's an ideal cable graft. The disruption of the sympathetic and parasympathetic systems within the auriculotemporal nerve after dissection, after a parotidectomy, lead to a particular condition called Frey's syndrome, F-R-E-Y apostrophe S, a syndrome really of gustatory sweating, 
with salivation. And in that circumstance, what happens is that every time one salivates, there's a flushing over the territory of the auriculotemporal nerve. In this circumstance, sympathetic fibres grow into parasympathetic axons after damage. Uh, this used to be very complicated and difficult to treat, and these days treatment is just by injection under the skin of the area with some methylene blue, which seems to cut these nerves out. But in the past, there was an anatomical approach which uh, um, was taken to the pathology with a range of options, and uh, people tried to, for example, inject the auriculotemporal nerve in front of the tragus and try and ablate it. Uh, some tried at the base of the skull to phenolise the otic ganglion, and some uh, did a, a, a craniotomy, um, sectioning in the middle cranial fossa the lesser petrosal nerve, which used to be known also as the lesser superficial petrosal nerve or Jacobson's nerve. So there was quite a lot of anatomical approaches to deal with Frey's syndrome based on the anatomy we know. Um, the only other thing that we should consider in this part of the discussion is uh, that it behoves us to consider the anatomy of the masseter muscle, which can be considered in association with the muscles of the temporal and infratemporal fossa, and I will go over it again. But as one of the muscles of mastication... It is a branchial muscle innervated by the motor nucleus of the trigeminal, which is located in the midbrain. The muscle actually takes a tricipital origin from the zygomatic arch and it inserts into the broad plate of the ramus or angle of the mandible. It's a quadrate-shaped muscle which covers the coronoid process of the mandible and the insertion point there of the temporalis. The external attachment on the outer surface of the ramus of the mandible is sort of equivalent to the internal attachment that the medial pterygoid makes. And so you've got this kind of symmetry enclosure of the jaw. The attachment extends to the zygomatic process of the maxilla. The upper part of the muscle is aponeurotic so that it slides against the parotid gland and the lower half of the muscle is a fleshy belly. The masseteric nerve runs between the deep uh, section uh, and the intermediate section with the arteries running between the intermediate and the superficial parts of the muscle. The nerve supply is via the motor or the anterior division of the mandibular nerve which is V3 which runs in front of the temporomandibular joint via the mandibular notch. As I've mentioned before this is one of the muscles of mastication, it's one of the muscles of the branchial musculature the first pharyngeal arch which forms the maxilla and mandible, the muscles of mastication of the masseter, the temporalis, the lateral and medial pterygoid. And because it's a branchial muscle, uh, it is innervated, as I've said, by the nerve of that compartment, which is V3. In this case, there's a specific masseteric branch. There's also a receptive, proprioceptive part of the fifth nerve, which runs in the nerve, and that relays in the midbrain to the mesencephalic nucleus uh, so that a local arc or reflex arc is created. So in effect, in that fifth nerve, the afferent neural stimuli define the position of the jaw. This is proprioceptive for the mesencephalic nucleus in the midbrain. And then they uh, leach out in a small reflex arc 
to the motor route of 5, which then comes back through to, in this case, the masseter and the other muscles of mastication. So there's a local reflex arc of sensation and proprioception of where the jaw is in space so that one doesn't bite down too hard and bites appropriately. And this is created by a little midbrain reflex arc, as I've said, um, near the mesencephalic and motor nucleus of five, so that there's not an excessive bite. The action of the masseter is to close the jaw and to draw the mandible forwards, but also to slew it from side to side. Now, the next area that we want to talk about is the submandibular gland. And uh, we'll continue on um, with that now. The submandibular region lies between the body of the mandible and the hyoid bone, aka the suprahyoid region, same thing. And this includes the submental and digastric triangles, we've already spoken about these, and whose deep part includes the floor of the mouth and the root of the tongue. Uh, some of this will also be covered later on in the oral cavity podcast. The muscles of the area in this region that we're talking about, the submandibular triangle, include the digastric muscle, the stylohyoid muscle, the mylohyoid, the hyoglossus, the styloglossus, the geneoglossus, and the geneohyoid. So quite a lot to remember, but what we're talking about there is really the digastric muscle and the stylohyoid, the mylohyoid, which is the diaphragm of the mouth, and then all of these extrinsic muscles of the tongue. The area houses the submandibular gland and the submandibular ganglion and the submandibular or Wharton's duct. The fascia here attaches to the mylohyoid line inside the mandible, runs across the mylohyoid to split tenuously around the submandibular gland. It's not nearly as tough as the fascia over the parotid gland. And the space under the mylohyoid can become filled, as we mentioned before, um, with uh, purulent material in a condition called Ludwig's angina, which can originate from a dental or tonsillar sepsis and which can effectively obstruct the airway under the mylohyoid. Now, there are some muscles and things to understand here to orientate. The anterior belly of the digastric arises near the symphysis menti. The posterior belly of the digastric comes from the pit of the mastoid process, with the two having an intermediate synovial tendon, which is bound down to the greater horn and body of the hyoid bone. This we've been through before. The muscle acts to raise the hyoid bone and assist in swallowing. It synergizes, as I have said earlier, with the infrahyoid muscles by stabilising the hyoid so that it acts as a stable platform for tongue movement. The anterior belly of the digastric is innervated by the nerve to mylohyoid, which arises from the inferior alveolar nerve, V3, at the level of the mandibular foramen. That's just above the mylohyoid line or ridge. And the nerve pierces a little ligament called the sphenomandibular ligament. This is running from the spine of the sphenoid at the base of the skull to just where the mandibular foramen is. So just above that foramen, this nerve is given off from the inferior alveolar, which normally then traverses through in the mandible, through the foramen. And that nerve pierces the sphenomandibular ligament. Um, 
the sphenomandibular ligament passes, as I've said, from the spine of the sphenoid, somewhat superficial to the medial pterygoid muscle, to reach the mandibular foramen at an area called the mandibular lingula. That ligament is actually part of the remnant of the first branchial arch cartilage, and as I've said, this is the compartmental nerve, which is V3. The superior part of that cartilage gives rise superiorly to the malleus of the middle ear, and the inferior part is fused to the medial aspect of the mandible. The posterior belly of digastrics is entirely different, and it was named by 18th century anatomists who just said it looks like two bellies of the same thing, but embryologically and innovation-wise, they're entirely different. The posterior belly is innovated by the nerve of the second branchial arch compartment, the facial nerve. The nerve is accompanied by a small submental artery which supplies part of the floor of the mouth and also the sublingual gland. The area is bilaterally drained by lymphatics which drain the floor of the mouth and the tip of the tongue. This is the submental triangle, bilaterally, as submental lymph nodes. The muscle passes deep to the lower pole of the parotid gland, the posterior belly of digastric, and it's a landmark, really, for the carotid bifurcation and an approach to the internal carotid at carotid endarterectomy. The posterior belly of digastric is crossed by the facial vein and the submandibular gland and itself runs across the neurovascular bundle, the internal jugular vein, the carotid bifurcation, and running over the carotid bifurcation is the hypoglossal nerve. So all of that clockwork is immediately in front of the posterior belly of digastric, hence the digastric triangle. The occipital artery runs superiorly on the deep surface of the posterior belly of digastric inferiorly, and the posterior artery runs superiorly on its upper border. The anterior belly of digastric is, as I've said, innovated by the nerve to mylohyoid. It doesn't actually get a Guernsey. There's no such thing as the nerve to the anterior belly of digastric. But the nerve to mylohyoid is the one motor part of a larger sensory V3 mandibular nerve. The one sensory part of the small motor root of V3 is the buccal nerve, and that should not be confused with the buccal branch of the seventh nerve. At the back of this is the only other muscle which is splitting around the posterior belly of digastric, and that's the stylohyoid muscle. We have a separate podcast that includes some information on the styloid apparatus. The muscle, the stylohyoid, is a small slip which arises from the styloid process relatively high up and posteriorly and passes alongside the upper border of the posterior belly of digastric. It splits around that muscle and inserts into the body and greater horn of the hyoid bone. It's innovated, as I've said, by the seventh nerve, and it pulls the hyoid bone upwards and backwards during swallowing. And it's an important landmark in neck dissection. Now, we come to the submandibular gland. This gland is like a small walnut, really located under the mandible against the mylohyoid muscle. It normally has a weight of about 15 grams, and it's loosely enclosed in the investing fascia, as I've said, and the stylomandibular ligament, in the way we've described it already. The gland is divided into a superficial and a deep lobe, which is like a U-shape, lying on its side and which wraps around the free posterior border of the mylohyoid muscle. 
the muscle runs from the mylohyoid line downwards, medially and forward, to a central raphe, which runs between the mandibular symphysis above and the central body of the hyoid bone below. So in effect, what happens with the mylohyoid is that it's running downwards, forwards and medially into a central raphe. And that's exactly the same sort of structure as the levator ani in the pelvic diaphragm. We refer to this area as the diaphragma oris. The submandibular duct arises from the deep part of the gland. Now, the gland is removed in a very specific way, again by specific incisions and instructions that are anatomical. There is a curvy linear incision placed over the gland, usually two finger breadths below the angle of the mandible, so to avoid injury to the marginal mandibular division of the facial nerve. The incision is carried down to the deep fascia capsule of the gland, which is then reflected as an upper flap, so that the nerve is not seen and is protected. The posterior aspect of the gland is grooved very closely by the facial artery, which needs to be formally ligated at that point. The upper part of the gland, just under the mandible, directly against the medial pterygoid, also has a very close association with the facial artery as it runs forwards onto the mandible, and that needs a second formal ligation. So you've got to mobilise the posterior and superior parts of the gland. If the free border of the mylohyoid is then retracted at the back, the deep part of the gland comes into view, and it reveals the muscle under mylohyoid called the hyoglossus, which runs at right angles to the mylohyoid underneath. So the mylohyoid has its free posterior border, and it's running downwards, forwards, and medially, running at right angles deep to that is the hyoglossus. On the top of the loose fascia lies the lingual nerve, which at this level is actually quite a large nerve, and it's held down by a double attachment of the small submandibular ganglion. As I've mentioned, this is one of the four parasympathetic ganglia of the head and neck. Lower down, if one were to do a section, certainly in the cadaver, but not at a submandibular gland excision, you won't see it, but lower down, lying on the hyoglossus, um, is the hypoglossal nerve. So it's much lower than the lingual nerve. The submandibular duct lies directly against the mucosa at this point and against the mylohyoid muscle. The duct runs medially between the sublingual glands and the geniohyoid muscle to open alongside the frenulum at the sublingual papilla, which can be seen in the open mouth. The duct has a particularly special relationship with the lingual nerve, which hooks superficially around the duct and which then runs deep to it on its medial side. There's a little poem attached to it, which I won't worry about. But the lingual nerve takes a swerve on the outside of the submandibular duct and then runs internally to a submucosal position. In cases of a submandibular stone, which you can feel, which are palpable in the mouth, these can be retrieved intraorally. But a suture should be placed around the duct between the mucosa of the gum and the mandible and held up so that the stone is prevented from falling back into the gland, because if it does that, the gland has to be removed. An incision can then be made directly over the palpable stone to release it, and you leave a little intraoral fistula, which doesn't require any suture, so this is a natural kind of fistula. 
There's always the possibility, of course, that this blind suture holding the duct can injure the lingual nerve, which is just superficially, very submucosal at this point, and which descends between the ramus of the mandible and the medial pterygoid muscle. But the actual risks are relatively small. The nerve passes inferior to the attachment of the superior constrictor muscle and the lower end of where it is attached at the pterygomandibular raphae, and it runs between the mucosa and the mandible, just posterior and inferior to that last or third molar tooth, and that's the place where it's accessible against the periosteum for a dentist's anaesthetic infiltration. Um, it also has a large gingival branch at this point, which supplies all of the mucous membrane of the lingual sulcus to the midline, and it continues on to supply the mucous membrane of the side of the anterior two-thirds of the tongue. So injury to the nerve itself has quite a uh, significant morbidity, quite apart from the fact that it hitchhikes fibres of taste from the corda tympani as well. So there's quite a morbidity if the nerve is injured. The nerve then lies close to the side of the tongue and it crosses the styloglossus, the upper hyoglossus, in that swerve around the submandibular duct. Now, just to clarify this, the parasympathetic supply of the submandibular and sublingual glands follows the normal parasympathetic pattern. There is a nucleus, in this case the superior salivatory nucleus, which is located in the pons. The preganglionic pathway for this submandibular gland, uh, ganglion is in fact the corda tympani, or the nervous intermedius of the seventh nerve, and thence on to synapse in the submandibular ganglion itself. The postganglionic pathway has to hitchhike and find fibres from five that get to the submandibular and sublingual glands, and so they hitchhike along the available lingual nerve, or V3, on its way to the target of the submandibular and sublingual glands. Briefly, the sublingual gland of Noon lies on the mylohyoid between the mandible and the geneoglossus, forming the sublingual mucosal fold, and it joins its fellow on the other side in the median plane at the origin of the geneoglossus muscle, so in the depth of the tongue. The lingual nerve and the submandibular duct lie medial to the, submandibular, uh, to the sublingual gland. There are a leash of 8 to 20 small ducts which open into the mouth on the summit of the sublingual fold, and it's supplied by the sublingual branch of the lingual artery as well as by the lingual nerve, as we know. And these fibres bring in postganglionic secretomotor fibres that are mixed with sympathetic vascular fibres from the plexus on the facial and lingual arteries. The sympathetic system is derived from little plexi on the available arteries. The parasympathetic system hitchhikes along component portions of the fifth nerve. To conclude, there are uh, a couple of things that we just need to finish off on. Uh, there are several muscles to consider finally, as well as structural orientations in the floor of the mouth. The mylohyoid has been described before, but takes origin from the entire mylohyoid line on the back of the mandible and runs downwards, medially and forwards to separate off the suprahyoid or submandibular space. It's attached from the symphysis menti to the central body of the hyoid bone in a central raphae, forming a base for the tongue during swallowing. Overlying it is, as I've already said, the anterior belly of digastric, the submental vessels of the facial artery, the submental nodes. The posterior border of mylohyoid lies obliquely free 
and is wrapped, as we've said, around by the deep portion of the submandibular gland. The nerve is the nerve to monohyoid. The action is to lift up the hyoid, provide a stable base for movement of food on the floor of the mouth. Now, if we're to pull the mylohyoid forward, under it, as I've said, is the hyoglossus, a quadrate muscle running in the opposite direction. And it runs from the bulk of the body and the greater horn of the hyoid into the side and substance of the tongue. And it interdigitates superiorly and laterally with the styloglossus muscle. I've added a little picture to the Facebook site. As an extrinsic muscle of the tongue, the nerve supply of the hyoglossus is the glossal nerve supply. That's the hypoglossal nerve, or the 12th cranial nerve. The muscle depresses the side of the tongue. It assists the genioglossus muscle in enlarging the oral cavity, wherein sucking the hyoid bone actually becomes relatively fixed. Um, and the borders of the hyoglossus are landmarks, particularly its posterior border, which is evident in neck dissections where the body of the mandible has been removed. But it's a watershed muscle because in front of it, high up is the lingual nerve and the submandibular ganglion. Below um, but, uh, is the hypoglossal nerve. And then deep to it is the lingual artery and the deep lingual vein. The second muscle in this region that we wanted to include is the styloglossus. These are all sort of suprahyoid muscles. That's at the upper outer end. It's arisen from the tip of the styloid process, bit of the adherent stylo stylohyoid ligament as well. And it too just passes to the upper part of the side of the tongue below the superior constrictor muscle. The ninth cranial nerve, the glossopharyngeal nerve, actually curves parallel with its lower border, although it's at a deeper level. And the muscle, as I've said, the styloglossus, is an extrinsic muscle of the tongue, so it's innervated by the hypoglossal nerve, and it pulls the tongue upwards and laterally. The other muscles that we include here, which are extrinsic muscles of the tongue, include the geniohyoid and the geniaglossus. The geniohyoid lies inferiorly and anteriorly on the side of the lower tongue, takes its origin from the mental spine, attaches to the hyoid bone, does exactly what it's supposed to do, geniohyoid. It lies directly alongside its fellow horizontally and on top of the mylohyoid. And the task is just to pull the hyoid bone forward, which effectively increases the volume of the anterior oral cavity to receive a food bolus. As we've said before, this has a specific innovation as an occipital myotome from C1 nerve root transmitted via the hypoglossal nerve as part of the superior root of the ansus cervicalis of the cervical plexus. The other muscle there is the main bulk of the side of the tongue, which is deeper to the hyoglossus, and that's the genioglossus. And that forms a fan-like muscle that is the bulk of the side of the tongue. It extends uh, muscle from the tongue tip down to the hyoid bone, and it joins its fellow on the opposite side. Its posterior and inferior fibres, when acting together, protrude the tongue as well as depress the central part of the tongue, if people can do that, as in sucking to sort of increase the oral volume. The anterior fibres retract the tongue tip, and it's this muscle which, when paralysed, moves the tongue on protrusion towards the affected side. Um, so that's the person who's had a stroke, they push their tongue out and it moves towards the paralysed side. One final point uh, to make 
is that the hyoglossus, as I've said, is a separating landmark for deep structures in the tongue. The lingual artery passes deep to the styloglossus with the ninth cranial nerve, the glossopharyngeal nerve, passing in a similar plane, only a little bit higher. This nerve is particularly delicate and it innervates the mucous membrane of the posterior third of the tongue and the valate or circumvallate papillae. The stylohyoid ligament runs down from the tip of the styloid process to the lesser bone or lesser horn of the hyoid bone, where from the angle between this ligament and the greater horn of the hyoid bone, the middle constrictor arises as well. So all these structures are deep, and they fan out posteriorly behind the posterior border of the hyoglossus to join their fellow muscle in a midline pharyngeal raphe. So you've got these structures, as we've said, the lingual artery, the deep lingual vein, the styloglossus, the glossopharyngeal nerve, and the origin of the middle constrictor of the side of the pharynx. The order from above downwards, deep to the hyoglossus then, is the glossopharyngeal nerve, the stylohyoid ligament, and the lingual artery. That's the end of this section, and we're on to the next podcast. Thank you.